1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast. I have a returning guest, Thomas Purifoy. He was one of the, uh, the producers of Is Genesis History, which was like a really fantastic documentary that showed geological and some archaeological evidence for why the Bible appears to be uh, corroborated with real events. He has a new movie out that we're going to talk about that's, again, a slightly different take that'll discuss some of the, the same issues, and we'll get into that shortly. But I want to welcome him back. Thomas, thank you for coming.
2: Hey, it's great to be here.
1: Yeah, it's kind of, uh, just for people that haven't heard the previous interview, can you talk about a little bit about your background and then uh, how you doing this history came to be? And then we'll go into the new movie.
2: Sure. My background was I've always been interested in science uh, from a young child. I still remember a lot of these old great universe books that I got. I grew up a kid in the 70s and I had these fantastic books that showed all of these planets. I remember thinking this is just amazing how this was all created. I grew up a Christian in a Christian home. And I remember when I was in high school, I took a biology class and til I was 10th grade, probably like what we were doing in the 80s back then. And the class was obviously taught from an evolutionary standpoint. I was kind of fascinated. I was like, okay, but well, this is this is something totally different than I've been taught. I was actually beginning to be kind of convinced by this and had at my church, which held to a view that was, you know, more of a, I would say more of a biblical view, traditional view that the earth was was quite young and that evolution wasn't real. I had a guy kind of challenge me and he said, hey, so if, you know, evolution is true, you should be able to demonstrate that pretty clearly. Or if, you know, creation is true, you you really need to research it. I was like, well, sure. So I checked out a bunch of books, checked out you know, books by Richard Leakey and other evolutionists. I checked out books by Henry Morris and other creationists, and I kind of put them side by side. And at the end of this came to the point where I was like, wow, that's actually, I, I really do think that this view of a young earth creation, that evolution didn't do everything to create, you know, well, form, we'll say, yeah. all the animals and all the world around us, that, that, that just doesn't really hold water. And so I, I kind of accepted this, put it on a back the back shelf, so to speak. And so a handful of years ago, I guess I now would be about almost 10, but a conversation with my daughter, who at the time was actually 10 years old, she'd begin to to evolutionary thinking and understood it. And she kind of had a lot of questions about it. But she said, you know, it, it seems like this is just a different history, that what, what's going on here, that this is a totally different history of the world than is presented in the Bible. And, and that's what kind of led me to my first film, was recognizing that what really is going on is it's not a question of science. And a lot of times people want to put it as a scientific question, but it's really a question It starts with history. And history is the sort of thing where it's just a very different world, and it kind of has its own world of authority. It's, uh, you know, we a lot of times will say, well, everything can be scientific, but there are a lot of things that empirical science can't always touch accurately. And, And things in the past... And things in the deep past, in some ways, are more and more difficult for science to touch. A lot of it's forensic, a lot of you having a reconstruction of things, a lot of assumptions being made. So my journey kind of led me to start asking and interviewing a lot of scientists that did start with the Bible, uh, book of Genesis being actual history. And these guys are creation scientists. And as creation scientists, as I, you know, a number of them, they're all of them quite interesting. I, I worked with, only with PhDs and a lot of them have, you know, PhDs from places like, you know, Harvard and Northwestern and University of, Al- of Australia. I mean, they're, they're, these are these are guys that are not, you know, podont folks that have kind of, you know, shown up and gotten a little degree from some school. These are places like Cornell. What I saw with all these men was sort of a they had been marginalized by these groups because they held by their own meaning the groups their own phd communities because they held to a view that was a little outside the mainstream but they very much had developed a, a larger body of evidence uh, demonstrating this and that what these that these views of looking at the bible as a book of history had a lot of scientific evidence that that well supported it things like a global flood things like animals being created in unique genetic kinds things like as we'll be talking about today that the earth has undergone enormous catastrophic transformations and you just kind of have to look around to, to see it. And so that was what opened up my eyes is that to quote to quote Shakespeare, I believe it's Hamlet, after he had, he had said it's, his friend had seen the ghost, is that, you know, there are more things in heaven and earth that are in your philosophy, Horatio. And I think that's a lot of what I realized, that when you start digging in, kind of the lines between what the Bible says, you know, it gives you the top level. But you start digging in deeper, you're like, whoa. There are some really interesting things in the world and some potentially really interesting things that happened in the past. So I hope that helps. It's kind of a long winded of how I got to my first film and the second film sort of came out of that a number of years later. Well, yeah. Tell listeners, uh, what was the theme of
1: Is Genesis History? What did the film go over briefly? And then Mountains After the Flood, what is the new one's uh, angle on it?
2: Yeah. So our first film was sorted to give a 30,000 foot flyover in 360 degrees. So to mix metaphors, we basically went over in an hour and 40 minutes uh, 13 areas that ranged from geology, paleontology, taphonomy, which is the study of how what of fossils, but in their the the location they're found, astronomy, archaeology, biology, marine biology, all these areas and looking at them from the perspective of Genesis being. Literal history, and so that was the first film, and it was did it was very popular in theaters. It has continued to be popular. It's on YouTube and Amazon and lots of other sources right now. You can watch for free. But one of the scientists that we interviewed, a guy named uh, Dr. Andrew Snelling, his background actually was uranium. He's an Australian and he'd worked in the Australian Geology Society for our, our community for a number of years. He had. In 2017, actually the same year we released this film, he had been doing some work at the bottom of the Grand Canyon on taking some samples on some very interesting rock formations. There is in, if people have been through the Grand Canyon, they've seen these. But there are some enormous, when I say enormous, like 10, 15, 20 stories tall of folded rock layers. And they are just incredible. And it's like literally, it's like a looking like Play Doh. Imagine a bunch of stacks of Play Doh, you know, different colors right on top of each other. And you basically take one side of it and bend it down and then bend it over. So it's got kind of an S, you know, shape to it. And what yeah, and the look like the mountains, Play Doh, they
1: were folded.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like, I guess, to me,
1: like they were Play Doh, right?
2: It's just like Plato. It's a, that That is correct. And so what's interesting is that this folded strata, and strata is just, you know, a, a layer of rock that has, sedimentary rock that has, in general, that, that has solidified. What these strata, these layers of rock were is that they're not just there, but really all over the earth. They are bent in really amazing contortions. Now, what makes them interesting in this particular case, what was interesting in the Grand Canyon is these particular layers were part of what are called the Tapete Sandstone and conventionally dated, you know, the Tapeete Sandstone is over 500 million years old. However, the folding action didn't occur in the conventional timeline until about 70 million years ago, 65 million years ago, in something called valeromite orogeny. It was basically when the Western United States was pushed up. And so you've got a gap of like 400 million years between these layers of rock. and And here's what's interesting it's not just the tepids; it's all the layers of rock on top of it that go all the way up until you get to this, this, this period basically in the early Cenozoic. So you've got, you know, hundreds of millions of layers of rock on top that are all folding simultaneously. And so the conventional view has always been, well, you know, this, yes, we recognize these are folded, and yes, we recognize that hard rock doesn't really fold. It normally breaks. That's what faulting is. A fault is when a rock Two rock faces or pieces of rock or have broken and then slide in, or they at least move in different directions relative to one another. But it's a break. The fold is very different. And what a fold would suggest is that you had pressure put on these rocks in different, play, in different ways that caused the rock to contort. Or in this case, what Andrew and these guys would say, we don't think they were rock yet.
1: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. So to, so to make a bad joke, do you think that some of the scientists are secular at fault?
2: <laughs> yes, that is very good. Yeah, it's a very good bad joke. I always say that they are, they were at fault. And I would, here's something interesting. I would say they were at fault for being consistent within their paradigm. So, I it's always very important to me that I don't actually think I think science and scientific thinking is far more complex. I've been I think that the work of Thomas Kuhn and his paradigmatic thinking is super important. A lot of scientists don't love thinking this way, but where we realize that data is being interpreted within a paradigm to provide certain amounts of evidence. And I would suggest that evidence can be used in many different paradigms and actually be sort of effective. That because of our limited knowledge of things as very limited humans, I think that there's a lot of things we just don't know. And so, I mean, the perfect example of this is the geocentric view of the universe, and it was, or excuse me, the geocentric view of at least the solar system. That the Earth is at the center of it. And it was a really effective, you know, people circumnavigated the globe. They did all sorts of very effective things, predicted eclipses for 1500 years. And yet people would say, well, it was wrong. And so what does that mean? If it's, if it's wrong, but it's effective, what does that tell us? And maybe it makes us think differently about the way science works. In this case, what I would say is the at fault is they knew in their view, the paradigm says that tapete Sandstone is 500 million years old, a plus 540. They knew in their view that the folding took place 70 million years ago. So in their view, there had to be some mechanism that would enable these hard rocks to bend. And normally they would say, you know, it's that kind of a metamorphism that would result, would be as a result of heat and pressure. The kicker, though, is that anytime you're putting some form of heat and pressure on a rock, it's going to transform the minerals of the rock inside. It'll have some effect. It'll have, you know, indicators, because if you think about it, if something's hard and it breaks, you've got to just change the molecular composition to some extent, or at least the crystal composition to to have this, this bend occur. So Andrew decided, well, heck, Why don't we go in and test these rocks? We can take rock samples. Let's go see if this tapete sandstone has undergone any metamorphic changes. Now, what was interesting is no one had ever done this before. As he searched the literature, that's what a lot of times scientists will do is say, okay, well, someone surely has gone in and done these tests and tested and, and he couldn't find it. And that again, it's, it's, I think a lot of it's just because the assumption was, well, we know it had to have been metamorphic because we know that these guys are old. Or or we know that he would say that that there were lots of small breaks and that we could see lots of fractures in the rocks. So Andrew went in, took a cameraman, and they started sampling about four major folds throughout the Grand Canyon section. And basically, there's not just the Depeat sandstone. There's two layers above it, uh, a shale layer the Bright Angel Shale and the Muav Limestone, which are just layers on top of uh, the, the piece that they sampled all and they all have folds in them. And in doing so, they collected all these samples and brought them back and then went through what's called thin section analysis. And... One quick section. So yeah,
1: these layers above had the same, were they folded into the same fold or yeah, they were for... folded independently?
2: So they are folded in. In the instances in which they were looking, they are not part of the same fold, primarily because some of these layers have been eroded away above it. So when the when the Grand Canyon, you have to kind of follow. And I actually spoke to someone recently who said, "Yeah, this, your, your film, your second film is a lot more complex than the first one." And, and in a way, it really is. What you have to imagine is a sequence of events of these layers being laid down, the layers being pushed up, and this would be held for even if you have a Genesis view or you have a conventional. View. The layers get pushed up. The Grand Canyon is eroded and then exposes these layers, and therefore exposes the fold. The process of eroding the Grand Canyon eroded away some of the layers on top of some of these folds. So, for instance, the most famous Carbon Canyon fold, you can see how it's been bent at you know a good ninety degree angle. But then the top of it looks like it's been literally been just broken off and it was eroded away. So, but you can look at other spots and say, oh, I see where these. You know, basically what this is called, it's called the East Kaibab monocline. You can see other places where those things have been bent. So what a monocline is is just that S shape. And what we show in our, discuss in our film is that this monocline was the event that took place to bend the, the strout. It was the pushing up of part of the Colorado Plateau. So I've gone on and on about this. And I, I, this is this is often the problem we get into in talking about this topic. Mm-hmm. We had it with the edit is that there are so many details you kind of need to understand to understand the next set of details and why this is a big deal that was the challenge of making the film is really of trying to say how do we clearly and carefully explain things where you've got to be able to explain a b c and d before you can ever talk about e you know and everything after it
1: but just a couple questions about the fold so were the folds according to the you know the, the scientific view or the secular view, I
2: meant secular. Do they happen at the same time, or do
1: yeah, so they happen in the past and then folding again?
2: Yeah, I'll take a step back here. What would be said is that, so let's it, just define our two views. So uh, we often refer to as the conventional view. What they're saying is that when the Western United States was pushed up, and they, they, we see this because the mountains are go all the way to the middle of the continent, by this mountain-building event, we're not going to discuss you know what caused it, but when they were pushed up, the different strata moved up in different ways, and there was an area like some were higher, some were lower. There's an area in the west called the Colorado Plateau, and this whole area was lifted up. Well, then areas within that area were lifted up. So what ended up happening if you've got an area that's lifted up higher than the other, you're going to have a fold that's going to appear. What your folks that hold to the a, a Genesis. Paradigm, A view that holds the Genesis as history would say this was after the flood and that many of these strata layers were still soft. They were still entrained with water and still because they've been recently laid down, you know, during the flood. So this would have happened, you know, toward the end of the flood and then right after the flood. So there hadn't been time for the rocks to lithify, to solidify. The conventional view would say, no, the rocks had solidified, but this folding that took place in this mountain building event, you know, and there was, there was a lot of uh, pressure and and heat. They were down low in many cases, although not all cases because some of the higher rock layers would have folded. And as a result, you know, this pressure caused them either to crack in places or it caused them to fold under metamorphic heat and pressure. So that's the, those are kind of your two options for what, what caused these folds, if that makes sense. Okay, but th- based on the folds, so what did Andrew Stelling find when he,
1: when he looked into the folds and sampled the different layers?
2: Yeah, so what happens is that, so we, this is where we kind of intersected the story, and Andrew had, begin to, had begun to actually take the samples and prepare them, and he sent them to a guy named Ray Strom. He's a Canadian petrologist, and basically what he is is he's a, he's a chemist and a geological, he has a name, a CHT, I can't, some technical name. What he does is he's worked for like 40 years in the oil and gas industry in Alberta. And so he happens to be a creationist, but his his main job is to work for Amoco. And what he would do is geologists and wanting to understand what's in rocks, they like to cut them into what are called thin sections. Basically, if you cut a rock down to like 30 microns in width, you can put it under a microscope and see it. And so you can literally see through the rock. It's a fascinating process we documented in the film. He sent these up to Ray, all these different samples, Ray creates thin sections and sends them back. And then what in Andrew's analysis of them is that these rocks do not appear to have undergone any sort of physical movement. They don't seem to have undergone any sort of metamorphic change. They pretty much look like a normal sandstone, a normal shale, a normal limestone. And then to make, just to kind of, have a check, if you will, is he actually took samples of the Tapete sandstone from areas that were not folded. So if you think about it, the area that is folded under the conventional view should evidence some metamorphic changes or at least some you know pressure changes. Some things should be different than areas of the sandstone that are totally flat and unbent. And so Again, in looking at these together, and we talk about this in the film, you know, he kind of holds them up back to back. And he's like, I can't really tell a difference between these two. They don't one does not seem to have any internal evidence that it has undergone any heat and pressure or any kind of, you know, breaking change, you know, within the rocks. You don't we don't see the crystals having broken and then reformed. And they even go down to scanning electron microscopy and look at this at the very deepest level with a three-dimensional. And you know, Ray Strong, we interview him, he's like, like, I don't see any difference here. I, I'm not seeing any sort of Evidence that these things folded after they had been had cemented, had lithified, and I mean, is Dell? He's Dell Tackett's in our film, obviously as well. He was in the first. I may have not have mentioned that he's our host of these. Dell says at one point he's like, "So this is really pretty a big deal, you know? This is actually a a fairly big observation that if these rocks folded when they were still soft, that it means they can't be five hundred forty million years old." They can't be that old. And that is the problem because if the rocks aren't old, then all the things that get associated with the rocks, which for this instance, if it's the feet sandstone, that's in what's called the Cambrian. The Cambrian is at the lowest part of the geologic record, called the geologic column, actually. of The lowest fossil bearing rocks, generally speaking, are in the Cambrian. And that's where you see the first fossils. So the question is that, you know, creationists and we talked about this in our first film, the first fossils came about really as the result of the flood first hitting the continents, and that these are probably shallow sea creatures that were ripped up and all over the world, you know, in place at the bottom of this, of this flood. And then all the other layers are flood layers that with fossils stacked on top.
1: But again, it's, so it's, it's a contradiction. The layers could not have taken millions of years to have been laid down in succession. Yet at the same time, they all had to be soft in order to fold.
2: It creates that. some real challenges. I mean, because it's not just there. I mean, you go all over the world. We actually show this, and actually Ray Strong talks about it. You know, up in Alberta and Canada, you know, it's, it's these huge rocky mountains folded. I mean, like that's like soft taffy. I mean, literally like Play-Doh. You look at these, you're like, we have one of these on our cover of our DVD, and I think it's called Mount Kid. I mean, it's extraordinary. These are almost, uh, you know, 160-degree turns of these folds, and they're not breaking and and that's the big deal is that i mean i've talked to other you know conventional geologists who are like no 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 there there are lots of breaks in there and i'm like i've got these on film i mean I, i've got very close up images of all of these folds and they you can tell there's not breaks real close to them i mean like they're they're not like thousands of little cracks as they've turned it's just fascinating because the evidence is very very strong it's a complex But the result is that if it is accepted, then someone has to throw out all of the hundreds of millions of years and then everything else gets done. It's a total overturning of the conventional paradigm. And that just can't be like it can't be accepted because then the entire evolutionary view of the world has to get thrown out. That is the reigning paradigm for how things came to be and why they are the way they are. And if it's thrown out, there is nothing there to replace it on from a, um, a conventional sense. It's just problematic. And so that's why I would say that the material, everyone should look at this. And But that's why Andrew, he's done like seven different, very in-depth technical papers to say, look for yourself. Here are all the thin sections. This is all my analysis. And so he's trying to, to go to you know the normal journal approach with scientists. But I mean, as a creation scientist, he's sort of condemned from the start you know he he's not allowed to speak because his findings are not acceptable and not to get too controversial but we might we can get controversial it was really interesting during the latest covid thing there was actually a documentary made by a spanish documentary filmmaker i think it was called the big reset but he interviewed his, his whole thing was this he said i knew a bunch of nobel winning scientists they were spanish and french and, and german who thought that perhaps what was being presented by COVID and the type of virus it was and what it was, how dangerous it was, was not accurate. And he said, I watched all of these guys get their reputations destroyed. They were dumb. They were idiots. They were told they had no idea what they were doing. And he was like, um, now I these are Nobel Prize winners. Like, I know that. that how, How can you have these guys that are so brilliant and have been accepted all of a sudden to be turned on them? And I was like, oh, I've seen this before. That's what happens is that a group with a paradigm must destroy anyone who has a competing paradigm, because if that competing paradigm is true, then their view is totally undermined. And if they have, you know, I won't get into I won't impugn motives, but if they have motives to accomplish something with their paradigm, that goes away too. And I think that was the bottom line with that documentary. But I bring it up to say this is not unusual in scientific history. And that's why this we really felt it was important to get this film out to reveal Andrew's research so that people could see that there is another side to this and that there's actually... I would argue, compelling evidence that the evolutionary view of the world just really is not the best explanation for what we see in the world around us. Okay. So after the first movie came out, what kind of feedback did you get? Did you already have the, the current
1: movie, you know, Mountains After the Flooded Mind, the headed bat come to be, and then we'll talk about what's in it.
2: Yeah. So the first film was well accepted by folks who probably already held to, to this view. Over time what we found is we've found, you know, millions of folks have seen it at this point. And I think it my sense has been some feedback we've got is that it has convinced a number of people that perhaps this is a a good model for earth history. This idea of uh that the Bible's a book of history that that's actually an accurate record of events, creation in six days, you know, a fall, a global flood, a real Adam and Eve. However, when we made this, we did not have that film in mind. In fact, we were working on our Beyond is Genesis history because the we had another, you know, all of this footage we'd taken. So we made another 48 videos that were about 20 minutes each, 15 hours of material on YouTube. Yeah. So our Beyond is Genesis History goes into all of the, I mean, our film, we spend maybe five, 10 minutes with each scientist. In our Beyond series, we usually have probably an hour or more with each scientist. And we have a bunch of people we weren't able to, about three or four guys we weren't even able to fit into the film that we include. Guys like, you know, Stuart Burgess, he's one of the top mechanical engineers in Britain. Dr. Kelly was a, he's a great theologian and uh, brilliant. He writes our systematic theologies and does a lot of the history of religion and and science, um, he's in it, and so, and then again, all the extensive interviews, and that's all again on YouTube. We we provided this material because we want people to be able to hear directly from the scientists. I feel like that's kind of my role is just to give the scientists a platform so they can speak. But this next okay. film, uh, who is Del Taggett? He it, it looks like an old football player or something like that. But now no. uh, ah. You know, is in a different industry. Like, what's just very quickly a bit about him? Dell Tackett is brilliant and fantastic and fascinating. So Dell is an Air Force officer and a colonel, a Lieutenant colonel in the Air Force he retired, but what his last job, quite interestingly, interestingly, is he worked for the first President George Bush in the White House. and he was basically was an interface between President Bush and the cabinets. It's a position that they have a, you know one military guy uh, gets chosen for. And and he was it. And so Dell' background had been computer science, and he worked actually in uh, NORAD and famous, you know, if everyone who's seen war games. Oh, like deep, deep, deep in the Mountain. Yep, yeah. deep, deep in of the Mountain, that's where he worked. So if you've seen war games, you know where Dell worked, and that was what he worked in. And he was a computer guy, and in, in that season of his life, got out of the military, went back to Colorado where he was living, worked to focus on the family, and developed the Truth Project which was, uh, you know, millions of people have seen it. That was back in the early 2000s. Basically, it was a worldview series. I got to know Dell a little after that, and we've been friends. And so when this project came about, I was like, Dell, you know, would you be willing to do this? Because Dell is just so smart, and he's such a quick study. And he already, you know, held this view of history of Genesis, but wanted to, he could go with these scientists, they would respect him. He could speak their language, but Dell's great gift is to make things simple. To make it easy to understand and to clarify he's kind of this great everyman and so he was willing to do the first one it was great these films would not be made without dell he is the essential to them and then he came back and said yeah i'd love to do this with with andrew and so he is in many cases the i would say he's the hub around which everything else turns on these projects that when dell's there just everything works great and he's able to kind of Clearly explain what's going on and, and help direct us to where we need to be going to talk about things.
1: All right, great. Yeah, sorry, I'm you, but okay, go ahead with the now mountains after the flood. Where did that come from? And what's that? What does that cover?
2: You know, that's a it's a strange it was a film that came to us and then we did not come looking for it. So when Andrew Snelling did his, well, take a step back. Andrew had wanted to do this research in the Grand Canyon, and this does not come out in the film, but we, we will probably talk about it in some of our extra materials. He basically put a permit into the Grand Canyon National Parks to take these, these samples. Well, they know Andrew's name. He's a young earth creationist, and so they denied him a permit to take these samples. Well, own no deal. You're supposed to allow geologists. Geologists all the time go through there to do this. And so what ended up happening is it was he... Appealed it. They still said no. So he went to Alliance Defending Freedom, a guy named Gary McCaleb, a very brilliant lawyer, got involved, and Gary pulled some freedom of information, freedom of information requests on emails that were sent, and it very quickly became this was worldview discrimination. And he pretty much, uh, you know, put this out to a judge, and the judge was kind of like, "You gotta let him have the, you gotta let him take these samples." And they quickly realized that they were basically just discriminating against him because they didn't like his paradigm. As like I said before, this is the common view, is that we don't even want to let you to get evidence. We don't even want you to get the data, because we already know that we're going to disagree with you. So, and I mean, this is, I mean, parenthetically, this is all kind of how science has become today. Areas, this isn't just this area. There are a lot of areas of science that are kind of controlled by a group that, can, that has a certain paradigm, and anyone who disagrees is not allowed a voice. And everyone is kind of taught, oh, isn't science all the different voices coming up there? It may have once been that. That does not appear to be what it is today in many years, well, Or well, remember, the science is settled. Yep. Anyone who has lived through 2020, 2021 should be, have a, a certain skepticism that science with a capital S, just like religion with a capital R, is probably not anything real. And that there are lots of scientists with a lowercase s, lots of people who have different religions and religious beliefs, people, and that they all have a lot of different ideas out there. And scientists are very fallible and they like to appeal as the priests to the great science, capital S. But, you know, th- there is no real science like that. There's just a bunch of people who are trying to do their best to create models and work within paradigms to understand what I would say is a very complex creation. But they're very limited. And so that's what we realized. And yeah, on uh, even your review, I've spoken to P-
1: thousands of scientists actually over the past seven years. And they said, oh, peer review, I have to review papers for other people. They review for me. So we kind of have this understanding. But they all said, if there's someone on the review board that doesn't like you, your paper's not getting in. It doesn't matter what it, it gets in. It doesn't matter
2: what it says. So peer review is BS too. That's the problem. Is that a lot of these situations are? Is that there is not a sense of? I mean, maybe there never has been of neutrality of a sense of saying, "Look, if you follow at least the rules, even if I don't agree with your findings, that you know you have a, the ability to have some freedom of speech." And and what's interesting, this is actually, I don't, know, I would be the first to say, I don't really agree with everything all the scientists have said or done in my films and in some of the books we've published. But to me, it's super important that these scientists get to be able to say what they want with total authorial intent. They need to have integrity that, yes, that's to me, that's what science is. It's putting together lots of ideas, many of which which may not be the most accurate, but we have to do that to be able for the long-term truth to come out. And so I, I kind of believe, have an older view of science that God has created a world that's very complex and that as humans we realize we can only try to understand parts and pieces of it. And even when we think we've understood it, we may not have understood it fully, but that that's the process that we're in as kind of created beings made in the image of God is to do science in a way that that works. But that's, you know, another conversation. Andrew did get his permit. He did go down and do the samples. And the result was though they wanted a record of the samples being taken so that if the Park Service came and said, oh, you did this wrong, they would have a, you know, a, a video record of it. So the cameraman, a great guy, Hilton Metzger, works for um, Alliance Defending Freedom. He called us up. Andrew said, you know, you got to call these guys. I've worked in a film with them before. They're going to know about cameras and such. So we have camera recommendations for him. We want to take to the Grand Canyon. And then a few months later, we get a hard drive in our mailbox. And Hilton said, hey, here's all our footage. You know, I hope you enjoy it. And so we took it and that's safe and did nothing with it for three years. And COVID, a little before COVID, I started thinking, I wonder if there's a documentary there. Maybe it's a buddy film, guys going down the river together. Or maybe it's, we didn't know what it was. I started to look at this material. Well, then COVID happened. And I was like, well, we're not doing any traveling. So maybe we can make this into a documentary. So over the next three years, we kind of pieced these pieces together of the documentary. And that's kind of how this ended up. It was a very unusual project of picking up a piece here, doing another one here. How does this fit together? And, I mean, I'll be honest, in many cases, I don't think I understood everything that was being argued and said until, in some cases, the edit suite, which is a little embarrassing to say as a filmmaker. That was not the case on the first film, but a lot of this material was complex, and the scientist would say something, and they would just assume I would understand it, and I would come back later and say, I don't think I really understood what you were really saying. Yes,
1: not not trained communicators either, so.
2: Well, it's just, I mean, every scientific discipline has its own vocabulary, and so when you talk about, you know, soft sediment deformation in the East Kaibab monocline, and, you know, you start using terms like this, you're like, okay, well, I sort of understand all those things, but much of this has been the need for me to educate myself and I'm constantly reminded just of how little I understand about so many things, and especially how these disciplines are, you know, they're complex. And there's a good reason these guys have PhDs, all PhDs. And this is the thing. I think it's really important. A lot of people will say, oh, we've got a, I've actually got this, and I like him. He's a PhD. He's an atheist. He's out of, I think he's out of one of the Ivy League schools. He's a geology professor emeritus. He gets a real bee in the bonnet, in his bonnet because of our films. But he regularly is saying, oh, these guys are liars. These guys aren't telling the truth. And sometimes you'll hear creationists say, oh, these evolutionists, if they hold evolution, they're a liar. And I'm like, I don't think these guys are liars. I don't think anyone's a liar. I think that they are taking the data and applying it within their paradigm as effectively as they can. And that in some cases, maybe they are saying, well, I'm not going to look at quite at this piece of data or I'm going to interpret it this way. But the data is very complex. And you've got to have that interpretive framework to put the data into. This is what Kuhn tells everybody. Like this was Kuhn's big observation is if you don't have that framework to put the data in, well, you're lost. The data alone without a framework is everyone wants to say, oh, I'm figuring this out from the data. You're like, no, no, no. You're assuming all sorts of things before you ever look at that piece of data. And
1: even so, if stuff comes up in the data that you can't make sense of, why not at least be open minded and sit with it and say, well. How could this have happened? You know, what am I missing? What am I not including? But instead, it it doesn't seem like that happens. Things are, you know, assumptions started off, data is looked at and twisted or cherry picked to suit a certain conclusion. Things are thrown away and not contemplated. I I just think that's a mistake. Like, why not think, hmm, how does this reconcile? Does it reconcile?
2: It's it's interesting. Yes, you're right. What's even more interesting to me is Kuhn wrote another series called Second Thoughts on Paradigms, because obviously- The Structure of Scientific Revolutions was so popular. And it's actually really worth reading. He kind of re-explores his idea of paradigm. One of the things he observes is, and he actually uses this as an example with geology and looking at a rock face, is he says young scientists are taught to see certain things. And so what's interesting when you think about it that way, it's literally they see these pieces of evidence and data and they Interpret it within a grid they don't even realize they're using, and so yes, sometimes it may be a cherry picking. I would go so far as to say that it's subconscious that if someone comes to says I'm going to do a facies analysis of this, you know, outcrop, they're going to be using terms and assumptions of facies uh, development, and a facies just means face. It's what the now, and it's just a, it's a 20th century development in how we're going to look at a rock outcropping, but they've got to bring all that to the table, and so. Kuhn observes this pattern of passing from one older scientist to a younger scientist how to actually think is what is so really powerful that is literally they just don't see things and this is what we have with these creation scientists the creation scientists say because we come from a different paradigm we literally see things that have always been in front of people but they've not really wanted to look at or not even thought to look at kind of like going in and taking these samples and it's that sort of, and I, this is why scientists do not like Kuhn, because they're like saying, well, what do you mean I don't see this? What do you mean, you know, I'm, you know, and Kuhn's like, you're doing normal science. You're doing it within your paradigm. And this weird psychological control that we all give to things, well, we know this in our own lives, you know, you all of a sudden you'll, you'll be interested in a car and buying a car. And all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. That's something yeah. bias that you're like, well, wait, I, why do I suddenly start seeing, you know, that, you know, Honda and I haven't. Surely there aren't more Hondas out being driven. That's a small example of how this selection bias subconsciously occurs. And a lot of philosophers of science and psychologists of science in the 20th century and early 21st, they love to explore this because that and I think it's super fascinating is how we influence our own conclusions by subconscious biases.
1: Yeah, no, really, I mean, definitely makes sense. Like you said, even you had a certain uh, outlook and level of understanding. And then when you saw this extra footage, you're like, oh, wow, there's a whole nother movie.
2: Yeah, And this is really why I kind of, we've landed on this idea of history versus science. I don't want to say versus, but the discipline of history sits outside of science. Meaning just to think about it, if if we were to lose every written word that's ever been said about our past, we, we would have a very hard time reconstructing accurately things that happened in the past 100 or 200 years. So there's there are all kinds of things that we could find, you know, implements, maybe it's, you know, you're going up and digging things up in the Champagne area of France and say, okay, I'm finding these, you know, huge shells, but what did they come from? You know, it, it's the, the, the idea that history that is passed on verbally through words that describe events is super important and we don't realize how important it is. But when you come to something like, you know, the Mycenaeans, and I think they haven't still haven't translated Linear B, I think that's it. Well, we don't know the history of the Mycenaeans, even though it's been written because it can't be deciphered. If it wasn't for the Rosetta Stone, we wouldn't know a lot of the history of the Egyptians, or at least the hieroglyphics of, of their history. So I bring all this up to say that my view is that the history sits as its own authority, and it has an epistemological authority outside that of empirical science. And I believe that the Bible provides that epistemological authority based on history, because that's what it claims to be. It's not that it's not scientific. It's not. It's like saying, well, you know, is a love song scientific? And you're like, well, no, it's not. But I would actually rather have a love song and everyone pays lots of money to hear Taylor Swift sing than they are to go hear a psychologist explain a scientific dissertation on what love is. In a sense, the love song is more true because it's closer to reality. Does that make sense? We're we overbearing. We're overbearingly reliant on this scientific idea. And it's just, it's scientism. It's problematic.
1: Okay. What else now has come to your mind or how is your perception different after doing the second movie, The Mountains After the Flood? What things have you learned that were uh, shockers to you or had helped fill in your view of, of history?
2: You know, I well two things. The first is I realized that I'm not as good as a documentary filmmaker as I wish I were. So that's always the thing is you always learn your own limitations in projects like that. Um, Is that just the ability to put stuff together? But what I would say that's been most fascinating to me is this idea of a very catastrophic world after the flood is that we often... You know, the Bible does not really tell us, you know, it it gives a very bare historical outline of things. But when you start looking at the landforms, which we talk about in the film, the geomorphology, the the shape of the earth, things that we just generally kind of assume. But then when you go like on Google Earth and look at like the Mississippi River Valley, you're like, whoa, that is really big. Or you start looking at the mountains in the West and you see how they've, they've risen, and you kind of run the chains, Google Earth is fascinating for studying geomorphology because you realize that there has been a very rapidly moving Earth at certain times in the past to create all of these landforms that are just, you know, we love mountains, but what caused them, and when, and how? And so you, I have found myself in awe, really, of what, god i would say did to reshape the earth through this catastrophic flood and then the processes that went on in many cases probably for hundreds of years afterward to continue to reshape that earth and to make it the earth that we live in today
1: so i know you just got finished with this movie but what's next i guess everybody would ask that
2: no it's funny i i originally had wanted to do a trilogy of films in a sense this film was kind of a Parenthesis. It was our COVID film, let's call it, because we couldn't do anything else. My next project that I really want to do, it's a trilogy to me, are these three questions that I feel the Enlightenment bequeathed on the West and that have brought us to kind of the state we're in today. The first is obviously is Genesis history. So it began to issue questions of, of origins. And, you know, Darwin, his theory and the theory of an old and enduring earth is what kind of held the day. And I I just don't think that's accurate. But the second question I would say is, is the Bible true? So and this is my next documentary series, and it's probably much bigger than what this is Genesis history series would be. But it would explore starting at Sinai, which is where you have the first inscripturation with Moses and and the, the Ten Commandments going all the way up to the present with iPhones. You know, and you read the Ten Commandments on your iPhone, and you're like, well, how do you know this is really what was said? And how do you know that this is actually really accurate what these words mean? It's the story of the Bible, and it's and it's, and it's being written, and it's being transmission, and it's being translated into the present. And it's a very big story. It would actually be a three, yeah, it'd be like, you know, a series with of uh, three, ten, ten episodes each, so around thirty episodes that would go through the entire Bible and and explore how there's basically a connection between these original events and then the books that we're reading today. That that there's actually an unbroken chain, chain of custody, if you will, that holds all this together and that you could say, Yeah, the Bible really is true. So those are the two questions. Third question, of course, is Is Jesus God? And that's a documentary series for far in the future for us. Yeah, no, that's that's really great that you're doing this and exploring all these questions.
1: So how do people, you mentioned it a bunch of times, so if they go on YouTube, they just type in what, is Genesis History full film to find it?
2: Yes. So if you want to watch our first film, it is free, you know, ad supported on Amazon and type in is Genesis History. It's on Tubi. It's on YouTube. If you want to watch the out ads, it's also, it's on all those places and also on Apple and also on our website com. Our new film is can be rented or purchased on Amazon, on YouTube, on iTunes, and also then on our website. Is Genesis History is where we provide all those all those resources. Okay, and the new one's called Mountains After the Flood. That's what what is called saying. Mountains After the Flood? Correct. Is Genesis History Mountains After the Flood? Okay. Well,
1: very good, Thomas. Where can people go to keep tabs on your work? Like when the ne- you know how the new film's going, when it's coming, et cetera. How can they follow you?
2: It's a great question. Probably signing up to our Is Genesis History account is probably the best. com has a way to sign up for things. And so because our next project will sort of link into this, we'll, we will undoubtedly be talking about it. I would say that's the easiest way to keep track of what we're up to. Okay. Well, very good.
1: Well, Thomas, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. I look forward to having you again as you continue learning and exploring because uh you, know, you really get into the details of things, the nitty gritty. And uh, I don't think a lot of people do. And I think uh, it's just great to look at all this evidence and, and just learn more about what you know, the real history of the world is.
2: Well, I really appreciate it. It's always a privilege and pleasure to be on your podcast. And uh, it's great talking to you. And thanks so much for uh, having me on.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.